Well, good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Central this morning where we seek transformation of our lives and our communities and the whole world through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians together this spring, and now we come to the end of his letter. And if you were Paul, how would you end it? He's spoken again and again and again about it's not in our external conformity, not our obedience that brings God's gift of salvation, but it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness as the hymn sings. We are reminded again and again by Paul that it is through Jesus' bloody cross taking our judgment on himself. His perfect life of righteousness given in exchange for ours, that's what fuels our hope. The bloody cross and the empty tomb, and now since Jesus' ascension, the occupied throne. Soaring truths he's shared with us week by week. So how would you end it? How would you end a letter like this. Let's pray as we turn our attention to Galatians 6. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit and open our eyes that we would behold Jesus in all of his glory and change us as your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here at the end, with what does Paul leave us? He's been talking about this gospel of grace that saves us. It's only God's grace. It's not our works, not our obedience, nothing that saves us, but the grace of God shown to us in the love of a crucified and resurrected Savior. That same gospel also changes us. Paul tells us we've been set free from slavery to our sin. We've been made new creations in Christ. We live and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. When the grace of God saves us, that same grace begins to change us. As we've said week by week, grace changes everything. But now here at the end, the Apostle Paul leaves us with one more view of a change in our lives, and it's this. What does it look like when that grace takes root in a church? What does it look like among a community for God's grace to grow deep roots among a people and change how we relate one to another? What does God's grace look like in a church? Paul has four points for us here this morning. First, God's grace rooted in a church brings a humble community. 
humble community. Look at verse 1. Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, when Paul says caught, he's not referring to caught as in being found out, but caught as in trapped, entangled. So the question he's speaking to is when someone is entangled in a sin, trapped in a a sin, how do those who are spiritually mature How does a gospel-formed, gospel-rooted church deal with someone like that, with someone who's given in to their sin habit again and again, perpetually struggling, caught in a transgression? How do we relate to and encourage them? Well, at least in my experience, quite often what we do is we heap up commands. We say, stop it. Stop it. And that's as far as we go. Now, I heard a couple of you snicker a little bit when I said stop it because you remember Bob Newhart. And if you remember the comedian Bob Newhart, once he played a a part of a psychiatrist who was guaranteed to cure his patients within five minutes of them coming into his office. He said he charged $5 for the first five minutes and anything beyond that was free. So he was so confident in his being able to cure them. So this young woman comes into his office because she was afraid of being buried alive in a box. So she comes in and she tells the psychiatrist, this is what's happening to me. And he says, I understand your problem. I have two words for you. They'll cure you. And she pulls out her notebook and her pencil and starts preparing to write them down. And he said, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to write them down. You're going to remember and you're going to take it into all of your life. Are you ready? She said, yes. And he yelled at her, stop it. Stop it, he said again. And she's startled. She's like, I don't understand. What are, you, what, what are you saying? And the doctor said, well, you know, I can't tell you the number of people who come in here and say the same thing. I don't understand, but I'm not speaking Yiddish, he said. S-T-O-P-I-T. Stop it. It's hilarious, in part because it's so familiar. We sometimes think that Paul meant to say that if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should tell them to stop it. End of story. And if they're really caught, you yell it at them. But that's not what God's word says. The Bible says that there are times when a lack of repentance calls for serious accountability, even sometimes placing people outside the fellowship of the church. But that's not where it starts. In verse 1, notice he's talking to the whole group and he calls them brothers, brothers and sisters, family of God. He leads with empathy. He leads with coming alongside following uh, fellow children of God, reminding them of who they are. It's like he's saying, you, child of God, remember that you are a child of the king. Remember who you are, brothers. And then he says, you who are spiritual, literally spirit people. It's like he's described in verse 5, the people in step with the Spirit, those of you who are walking in the Spirit, as Paul's been talking about throughout that whole chapter, it's not about a group of super-Christians. It's about all of us. We who are named with Christ's grace have the Spirit of God inhabiting us. And he says, you who are spiritual, restore in gentleness. That word restore is used for the mending of a fishing net. It's a word that describes how nets that have been torn and ripped apart are woven back together so they begin to function properly again. That's the word that Paul uses for how we 
respond to someone who's caught in a transgression. You see, stop it only alienates people in being harsh, but God calls us to a gentleness, weaving people back into the fellowship of love, a community of support and encouragement, calling sin what it is, absolutely, but coming alongside in gentleness, ready to reweave a life back into faithfulness to Jesus and in faithfulness to Jesus' people because Jesus is always faithful to us. Even when we have been caught in our sin, Jesus is faithful to call us back, gently woo us back, to reweave us into the family of God. But here's the surprise. He continues, he says, keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now, this is the attitude of spiritual maturity, coming alongside someone, brothers, spiritual ones, coming alongside with my attitude being, that could have been me. Rather than an attitude of stop it or or judgment, maturity looks like coming alongside someone and realizing how temptable I am, how liable to any kind of sin, capable of every kind of sin under the sun. It could have been me. That's what spiritual maturity looks like in gentleness, calling people, weaving people back into faithfulness in the community of God, realizing I'm not any better than you because your sin could have captured me too. Who is it who looks at their life like that? It's not someone who thinks that they've outgrown a need for grace. It's not someone who thinks I've conquered all my sin. It's in my past. I don't deal with sin anymore. That's a proud person who tells people to stop it. But the humble is one of verse 14, where Paul talks about, be, be far from it from me to boast, except in, boast in, I can fix you. No, no, that's, that's not it. That's, that's a boasting in pride. Who boasts in, um, I don't do what you do anymore. No, no, that's, that's self-righteousness. It's not boasting in that. Boasting in, you should be better by now because I've surely overcome my sin. That's verse three, someone who thinks that they're something when they're really nothing. But Paul says, none of these boasts should characterize our lives because we boast in nothing except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what binds a community of humble followers together in a community. It grasps that it took the Son of God taking on flesh and being nailed to the cross because of my sin. It took the Son of God being judged in my place. That's how caught I've been in my sin. And the only reason I'm free is because Jesus has come after me, bringing me forgiveness and healing. As C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Paul says, you who are spiritual, you who... Know that you need the Lord Jesus. Gently restore because all of us are liable to temptation in our own lives. What does a community, a church rooted in that gospel look like? It's filled with people who know that our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is in Jesus and we begin to live in humble community with one another alongside the Lord. A gospel rooted community boasts in the cross, boasts in God's grace. 
Second, a gospel-rooted community bears one another's burdens. Look at verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, to bear a burden is to serve one in an area that's either large or small and come alongside them in their hour of need. Now, in the context here, Paul's talking about fighting sin, being caught in sin. And he calls us to lean into relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ so much that we are willing to inconvenience ourselves in order to help them. Bearing a burden is to take the weight off of the shoulders of your friend so that you are weighed down a bit and your friend is lightened. That's what it means to bear a burden. A church rooted in the gospel work of the Lord Jesus Christ willingly bears one another's burdens because we follow in the footsteps of a Jesus who bears our burdens. It's been a while since I've used a Lord of the Rings illustration in a sermon, but today's the day. If you know the story, you know that Frodo was given the task to destroy that one ring that that rules them all, that power that corrupts people. And it was an intense burden that he had to bear himself, but he couldn't bear it alone. He needed a company. He needed a fellowship of the ring to, to help him destroy it. So there was one appointed, and not least of which was the character Samwise Gamgee. You know, Sam is the faithful friend who stuck next to Frodo, Frodo through thick and then, and at the end of the books, end of the movies, the, uh, Frodo was climbing up the mountain of Mordor to throw the ring in, and he was exhausted from the weariness of this evil and this long journey, finally coming to this place, and he collapsed on the mountain. He just couldn't keep going. He had nothing left. And in that moment when it looks like all was lost, three movies worth of stuff lost, <laughs> Sam steps forward. And he said, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And so Sam picks Frodo up and flings him across his shoulder and then begins to hike up the mountain carrying his friend who couldn't keep going. That is what burden bearing looks like. Coming alongside someone and lifting a bit of their load onto your own shoulders. Paul says as we do that with one another, we fulfill the law of Christ. When we bear one another's burdens, we move toward one another in love as Christ has moved toward us in love. As we bear one another's burdens, we moving toward them in love, we point the one who struggles to a power beyond themselves. We point them to a love of Christ for them, even when they've wandered into harm because we are God's gifts to one another to encourage one another, bear one another's burdens. When we feel lost, when we feel distressed, we have brothers and sisters to come alongside and pick us up and help us carry the load. How beautiful a community when it looks like it takes on Jesus' footsteps of sacrificial love. That's what a gospel-rooted community looks like, humble and bearing one another's burdens. Paul keeps going. The third way that a gospel community looks is we share gifts. Look at verse 6. He said, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul's returning again to relationships, specifically with sharing our gifts with one another. He says, a teacher gains his livelihood as a teacher. That all good things is used several times in Scripture, not just for friendliness, but compensation, wages, monetary compensation. 
He's saying teaching the word, sharing the word involves significant labor and those laborers are to be compensated. That's how they gain their livelihood. But interestingly, Paul describes this dynamic not in language of wages, but in terms of sharing gifts. And that's a very different idea. What he says is each person shares what they have been given in order to benefit all the others. The teacher has been gifted and called by God to teach, and that teacher must share that gift. But there are others who've been gifted with generosity, who've been gifted with financial blessing, material blessing, and they're called to share what they have with the teacher. Others, in other places, the Apostle Paul says, some have been gifted with hospitality, some have been gifted in gifts of service or discernment or any of the other gifts, and each of us bring our gift into the house of God that we share with one another what we've been given. We bless one another what we've received. We pour out our lives to share the gifts that God has given us so that they're given to one another. That's what a gospel-rooted community does. We share gifts with one another. I hope you realize that the gifts that God has given you are not for your uh, consumption. They're not to be spent on us. Gifts and talents and blessings are to be spent in serving and blessing one another, not just building up self. We've all seen the effect of church shopping and what it looks like when someone treats church as if they are a consumer. I go into that place and consume religious goods and services. I'll take what I can from this church, but The picture Paul leaves us here is not coming in and asking, what can I take? But coming in and saying, what can I give? What have I been given by God that he's calling me in partnership and sharing a life so that other people in this community are blessed? That's what a gospel-rooted community looks like. We share what we've been given for one another. And finally, a gospel-rooted community looks like one doing persistence in doing good. Not giving up. Look at verse 9. Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sometimes in this life we grow weary, don't we? We want to give up because it's hard. It's hard to live in a world where walking with Christ is a battle every day. We battle against our flesh. We we battle against our sin every day until we see him face to face. It's hard to battle against that pull of our sin day after day after day. It's hard when we long to change, when we pray to change, and it seemingly comes so slowly. It's easy to want to throw in the towel and give up. But Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Let's not give up. Let's not give up making our gifts available to others. Let's not give up laying down our lives in service of others. Because he says, in due season, that is when the Spirit of God determines when the season is ripe. In due season, we will reap. We'll reap a harvest of glory to God through the seeds of a gospel-centered life that have been scattered in relationships around us. Paul says, don't give up because the Spirit of God is at work doing things you can't see. The Spirit of God is at work in you. The Spirit of God is at work through you. 
So do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. We can afford to be patient. We can afford to persevere with one another and with ourselves because the Spirit of God is at work. A gospel-rooted church hangs on to that hope. We don't hang on to how faithful I've been, how many times I've walked through the doors of the church, how much I've given to the church. We don't hang on to any of those as our hope. We hang on to the hope that Jesus is alive and he's here and he's at work. That's our hope, even when it's hard. Maybe especially when it's hard and we want to throw in the towel and say, I've had enough. Persevere because Christ is here and his spirit is at work among his people. I want to close with a quick story about a session meeting not too long ago. We, uh, we always begin every session meeting with a devotional, looking to God's word. But this particular night, one elder asked that he could speak because he wanted to confess a sin to the brothers. Now, that doesn't happen every session meeting. <laughs> but another elder had a few weeks before said something, and this elder took it the wrong way, and began to weave it into a narrative of suspicion. He must mean such and such, and he's pursuing this agenda, and, and you know how it works. We spin this narrative of suspicion and slander in our minds. And then he accused this fellow elder. That's not the important part. We all do that, don't we? We spin narratives of suspicion in our minds, and we take words and twist what they mean to mean something more onerous and that's not the important part. We all do that. The important part is that he confessed it. He confessed it at a session meeting in front of all of his brothers. And then this elder continued. He said, but I love this man. I love him dearly and I sinned against him because I accused him of something that wasn't true. And then he had tears in his eyes as he confessed. He said, I sinned against my brother and I asked him to forgive me. And he has. It's a beautiful moment. But then he kept going. He said, that's how deep my sin runs in my heart. And brothers, we all need to understand that's how deep our sin runs in all of our hearts. And then he made a little gesture like this. He said, we are all this close. Every one of us are this close to giving into the sin that wants to destroy our lives. This close. That stuck with me. Because here was a man who understood Galatians 6.1. Who celebrated the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who can free us when we're caught in our sin. But also one who wants to counsel one another. Keep a watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Here was a man who wanted to boast in the cross of Christ. The cross of the Lord Jesus who forgives and heals and enables us to forgive one another. And what I want you to know as I leave for sabbatical tomorrow morning, I want you to see what I see in this church. What I see growing in our leadership. What I see growing in this congregation. We're not perfect. We're far from it. But what I see is a deepening gospel rootedness in humility. That's what I see among your elders in this church. What I see among these brothers are a willingness to bear one another's burdens willingness in a congregation, willing to share our gifts and persevere with one another, all because we testify together. Jesus is alive here. I hope you're encouraged. 
I hope you look around the congregation, look around the sanctuary this morning, and you see story of, of redemption after story of redemption after story of redemption. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus reigns over Central Presbyterian Church. I hope that fills your heart with hope because God is at work. Be encouraged as you see it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are the kind of God who forgives us. You see us. You see that we've all been caught in sin. And there may be someone here this morning caught in sin and can't get out. I pray, Father, that you would use us as instruments in the Redeemer's hands to gently restore those who are caught. Use us as instruments and tools of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. As we boast in the cross, would you bring us freedom? Would you bring us freedom from our sin? Would you have it take root even more deeply in our congregation that the world may know that Jesus is alive and he's at work here? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.